1: Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Networks, New Books of Popular Culture, and I am here today with Damian Searles, the author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. Damian, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. So I wonder if we could start out with you talking about how you... Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network's New Books of Popular Culture, and I am here today with Damien Searles, the author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. Damien, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. So I wonder if we could start out with you talking about how you came to this topic. What? How did you get to research and write about Rorschach?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a, a personality testing crusader, uh, kind of in either direction. Um, for me, it was it was just like pretty much everyone I talked to, where, you know, I'd heard of the Rorschach test, I'd seen what I thought were the ink blots, and I'd read a million newspapers calling everything, you know, a Rorschach test as a way of saying, well, we're not going to tell you what you should think of this event We'll just say it's up to you, and and whatever your reaction is is fine. Um, so uh, I was kind of just curious about it in a in a generalist sort of way, um, and then I'm a, a literary translator, so I was um, very familiar with the context he was coming out of early 20th century German speaking Switzerland, and so I noticed where he was from, and as soon as I started reading around even a little i realized that this was a very interesting person his his writings which had never been translated had this great voice and there was really a lot to his story as well as the story of the ink blots.
1: right and that's one when i i sort of come at rorschach like you do like i don't know i'm i don't have that background in psychiatry or psychology and so we, i know about the test it's towards the end of the book you mentioned um The Jay Z cover of Decoded, and I'm like, yes, those are some of the things that I remember about Rorschach. But I loved the fact that you sort of introduced. I I was, I want, I wanted to know more about him as I read this. So, can you, you sort of start out by giving us the sort of history of who he is and a bit about his life and how he sort of came to to doing these ink blots and came to this research. So, can you talk a little bit about him growing up and his family and life that you talk about at the beginning of the book?
0: Sure. So um, the book is uh, kind of in two parts or two symmetrical halves, if you will. <laughs> um, there's there's the biography of him. And as I say, there's never been a biography of him, even in German, before. Um, none of this material has sort of seen the light of day before. Um, and so then the second half of the book is more the history of the Rorschach test. And it kind of makes sense to bring those together in a way that... If you're doing a, a history of, I don't know, a blood test or the IQ test or something, it doesn't necessarily make sense to talk about the inventor. But the thing about the Rorschach test is it's really uh, this kind of fusion of art and science. So, so he's both the artist who made the test and the scientist who invented the test. Um, one thing I should maybe mention, this is another thing I didn't know going into the project, is that it's not like these are random smears and every doctor makes their own every time you go in. There are ten and only ten ink blots that Herman Rorschach made, and those ten are still used today. So every single Rorschach test is the same ten images that he made. At one point, I say these are probably the ten most analyzed paintings of the 20th century. Um, so. That's why it sort of makes sense to talk about where he's coming from together with talking about what the test is and how it works. Um, So yeah, he was a a psychiatrist. He was born in 1884, had pretty modest background. His dad was a middle school drawing teacher. And so he grew up um, with a very sort of artistic visual environment, um, and he was a, a, a lifelong amateur artist. He would uh, keep sketchbooks and make drawings and carve toys for his kids and stuff like that. He was a visual person. um, And that would turn out to be important. So uh, both his parents died uh, when he was pretty young. He decided to become a doctor and then decided to become a psychiatrist. Um, And so studied under Carl Jung, learned uh, psychoanalysis in the sort of early freudian version which he used and liked but was not um sort of slavish to uh there's one letter of his i like where he jokes that in vienna they're going to be explaining the rotation of the earth psychoanalytically before long so he <laughs> was uh you know duly cautious about the kind of cult of personality around freud but really um admired and used the methods and anyway, it was just working alone um, that he came up with this visual test.
1: And it seems like he sort of came to psychiatry at a besides with Freud and Jung at a very new sort of moment in time when uh, who the people were were valued just as much as like sort of figuring out their their mental health or mental illness.
0: Yeah, that's certainly um, that's certainly something that all the leading figures of the time like Jung and people like that say. Um, I, I'm a little skeptical just because kind of every generation of doctors says we're the ones who really understand people and all the people before <laughs> us were just jerks. And they just had these cookie cutter ways of you know, classifying people that weren't really humanistic interests. So I'm a little bit skeptical. You know, the people in the earlier generations were nice people and good doctors and caring psychiatrists as well. So, uh, you know, let's be fair. But the fact is that um, there wasn't really much of anything in the 19th century and earlier that psychiatrists could do. I mean, they just didn't have the brain technology, they didn't have um, psychoanalysis, they uh, were sort of acting like philosophers or counselors or pastors or, you know, they were just trying to help people spiritually or understand them sort of philosophically. Mm-hmm. But uh, it wasn't really until right around the turn of the 19th and 20th century that there were actual techniques that, you know, they could use as doctors. Um, I don't know if that answers your question about um, it being a new age of uh, sort of respecting and understanding people, but I I should say that um, Rorschach's teacher, his sort of advisor in medical school and mentor, um, was another very important pioneer who was kind of written out of history because he was Carl Jung's boss and Jung didn't like him. (laughs) Um, so Jung never mentions him by name in the memoir and sort of disses him. But his name was Bloiler, Eugen Bloiler, and he at the time was the most important figure in bringing Freud's ideas into medicine, being used in hospitals, being used with sort of seriously psychotic patients, not just a narrow, wealthy uh clientele on Freud's couch in Vienna but really sort of entering the mainstream of medicine and psychiatry. Bloyler was the main figure for that. And he was a, a, a extraordinarily sort of caring and sympathetic and empathetic person who would, you know, have 10-hour, 12-hour, 14-hour days talking to all these seriously psychotic patients who sometimes couldn't even answer back, but he would really bond with them and stuff like that. So, um that he he's sort of the main figure in um really trying to to make this shift you're talking about. And you know, one thing he did, for example, is he's the one who came up with the word schizophrenia
1: mm-hmm. because
0: mm-hmm. the term before that was this very kind of off-putting Latin medical term dementia praecox, which there was no adjective for it. It was in Latin. It was like this thing that just meant you've fallen apart uh, and your mind is gone. And so he wanted there to be a new term. Schizophrenia means a split mind, which, you know, isn't necessarily fatal. You can recover from it. You can still have working parts of a split mind. You can use it as an adjective because it's not the most important thing about the person necessarily. Stuff like that. So he he was a very... um caring figure and he was he was Rorschach's main mentor
1: right and I thought that was really interesting I did not again like you said I did not come at this with a history in psychiatry or psychology so that idea that um defining schizophrenia in new ways and thinking of these I thought that was really interesting and I appreciated and I appreciated that in a way that I could understand it (laughs) as not being a psychiatrist uh Another thing that I thought was really interesting in sort of Rorschach's life is this connection to Russia.
0: Yeah, so uh, there were a lot of Russians in Zurich and especially a lot of Russian women because Mm -hmm. uh, there was nowhere else they could go to university or medical school. Um, It was just illegal for women. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The the first woman, uh, I think, anywhere in the world to get a medical degree to become an MD was a Russian woman who got it in Zurich uh, in the mid-19th century, sort of before Paris or uh, anywhere else. And um, if any of you saw uh, the movie Dangerous Method about Carl Jung and his sort of patient who became his mistress, who became his colleague named Sabina Spielrein, she was another Russian woman in Zurich right at the same time Rorschach was there. She and Rorschach got to Zurich the same year, um, so there were a lot of um, there were a lot of Russians in Zurich specifically. But it's also that Russia was really fascinating to Western Europe around the turn of the century. Uh, it wasn't just Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov and the Russian ballet, but it was just this enormous kind of frightening but seemingly deep country that had this sort of totalitarian czarist government, but at the same time, these sort of spiritual depths. And it was very uh, imposing and impressive to to Western Europe in, in a way that I don't think is really matched by anything except um, how American culture after World War II was so fascinating to Western Europe. Um, so, so Rorschach just really fell under the spell of this idea of Russia as like the land of deep feelings. And in fact, married a Russian woman who was a medical student he met in Zurich. Um, He learned Russian. They talked Russian at home. He translated a Russian novel in his spare time. He lived in Russia uh, for several periods for sort of months at a time and was thinking about settling there. And a lot of the stuff that seems strange about him like his combination of sort of generalist visual artistic interests and in psychiatry um, was much more normal in the Russian context. So, you know, he's kind of this secretly Russian figure. If we were used to talking about the Russian side of psychology, then Rorschach would make a lot more sense in that context. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And that connection is really interesting, and the white and his wife, and then he cho- and then he sort of seemed to become very disillusioned with Russia.
0: And well, it was a t- 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 tough time in Russia. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know? he, he didn't get to go in 1905 uh, as a college student. He was planning his first visit, but there was the revolution, and um, he was there for the first half of 1914. And when he left just a couple weeks before his wife, unfortunately, World War I started. Mm-hmm. So his wife was sort of separated from him uh, for about a year. Um, his sister, his younger sister, who he uh, had a very close relationship with and he was very supportive of her personally and intellectually. Um, she had heard about how great Russia was. And so she went to Russia as a governess and she was stuck there. Uh, by the revolution too. So they're kind of amazing stories of her teaching William Tell the sort of Swiss legend of freedom to all these Russians in 1918 after the schools get reopened and before all the teachers start getting arrested as intellectuals. So, you know, he was certainly worried about her and about his wife's family and about how to, you know, get them out of Russia safely. Um, So... Yeah, he 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 was right, worried about Russia in that
1: sense, right? And one of the th- what I really appreciated too is that you gave us this sort of larger, right, context, so we've got to see what was going on historically at that time, right? What was going on in Russia? What was going on in Europe? As well as what was going on with him? And I mean, he was really prolific in what he was writing and what he was producing, even prior was- to.
0: Prior to the spoiler,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Rorschach
0: died very young, he was 37 years old, and uh, he had published the test less than a year ago, and um, so uh, the whole kind of subsequent history of the test was outside his control, and I think that's part of the reason it sort of was free to go in all these different directions, Mm. and it especially took off in America, So, I mean, the whole second half of the book, um, I I try to do the same kind of broader cultural sweep so that we're not just getting the ups and downs of the Rorschach test in the psychology establishment, but because it entered the culture so deeply, we're really getting this big picture about, you know, how did the Americans react to modern advertising and the Nazis in the Nuremberg trial and the 60s where there were these revolts against authority and what were they exporting as anthropologists going off around the world Um, and then down to today as well. So, so yeah, it's uh, sort of in both halves that there's this kind of bigger cultural story to tell, not just the narrow scientific one.
1: Right. And so before we get to that sort of second half, can you talk a little bit about how he came? Right. This wasn't, I did these ink blots and they worked. Like he did a lot of research and a lot of work on what to choose, how he wanted to present the ink blots, thinking about colors. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of background and history of getting to the tests that we all sort of are more familiar with today?
0: Yeah. So, um, it, it actually was a little bit like he discovered them and it worked um but uh but of course there is a backstory to it so so ink blots had been used in psychology but in a very narrow way basically sort of along the lines of iq tests for children they would make some smear and show it and if the kid could come up with one or two things it might be, then they weren't very imaginative. And if they could come up with 20 things, then they had a lot of imagination. And and that was kind of it. Um, it was really designed to sort of count the number of things you can come up with in this situation. And there are a few problems with that. Um, one is that imagination isn't like in a separate bucket from everything else in our minds. You know, it's not like you have this much memory, and this much grit, and this much imagination, and this much willpower, and they're all separate, and you can just count up your score in each one. Um, And the second thing is that not every answer is an imaginative one, especially if you have a visually interesting blot that actually looks like things. You know, if you're very perceptive and visually acute, and you see a lot of stuff, that doesn't mean you're imaginative or unimaginative. It just means you're perceptive. Um, and, in fact, when Rorschach, uh tried asking people, okay, you know, here's this ink blot. now use your imagination, he found that it didn't make any difference whether he told people to use their imagination or not because they weren't trying to imagine things. They were mm-hmm. trying to see things. The question he would ask when he showed them the blots is, "What? what is this? You know, what might this be? What do you see? It wasn't tell me a story or make something up or, or whatever. And, uh, that's, that's part of why it had to be blots as kind of interesting and unique as these 10, if it was just a random smear and everyone saw something random, then it wouldn't really be a test. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, let me say a little more about the test because the other big misconception about it is that it's really about what you see. You know, if you're, Uh, a a happy, healthy person, you'll see a butterfly floating over a field. And if you're the murderer, then you say, oh, I see the bloody knife hidden under the (laughs) desk, you know. Um, But that's not actually what it's about. Uh, Rorschach originally was sort of interested as a scientist in how people see things, not in what they see, but in how they see. You know, do you start with the big picture and then focus on details or go the other way around, does color um, sort of enhance or interfere with your ability to see and identify shapes, stuff like that. Um, And so when he would show these 10 cards and say, what do you see? And you'd say however many answers you have for each card, Um, he would write down each answer, but then he'd give them codes based on what kind of answer it is so if you're describing the whole picture then he gives it a w because that stands for whole um, i mean obviously he would do the german version of that um, if you see a detail it's d if you use color in the answer it'd be c stuff like that um, in terms of the uh actual content like it really doesn't matter if it's a bat or a butterfly if it sort of looks like either one what he would do is sort of give a plus or minus for um, if if it's well seen, if it actually, if you're describing something that the blot actually does look like, or a minus if it's some totally uh, out there answer. And of course, when he invented the test, he just had to make his subjective judgments. But his first priority was to make it more objective and get a big sample size and stop talking about whether he thought it was a good answer and instead say well fewer than 1% of people who've taken the test see this here so it's a very unusual answer Um, and that's objective and so it's not that unusual is bad like if you only see really obvious kind of boring things then maybe you're a boring person or maybe you're depressed or that's also a red flag. Maybe you're trying to sort of fake the test and you're just saying what seems like safe answers to you. If you only see really original things, then maybe you're a super creative person uh, or, you know, maybe you're not in touch with reality and you can't actually perceive the way the rest of us perceive. And so a lot of original answers can be good or bad depending on the other test results. So that's the thing. The the results of the Rorschach test are these relatively few numbers and sort of proportions between one kind of answer and another or sequences or things like that. And, um, And they all sort of interlock with each other. So there's no decoder. It's not like if you have more than six original answers, that means this about you, because it depends on what kind of original answers and which cards they're on and what your other answers are like and all sorts of stuff like that. So um, on the one hand, it is this sort of holistic interpretation a lot of the time. But on the other hand, it is numerical and you can do statistics and you can sort of validate that an elevated number of this score, you know, actually Mm -hmm. does correlate to something.
1: Yeah, no, and when reading it, I found especially his relationship with movement and thinking about movement really fascinating, right? Because because and as you're talking about, many people you think you just look at it and it's this very simple, do you see something unusual or you don't? And it's more much more nuanced than that. And even the colors that he thought, right, thinking about reds and the colors that he thought about to present were... Um, were yes, much more nuanced. I guess is what I yeah.
0: To uh, I mean, it's hard to really walk through it uh, on an audio medium yes. like this, right? <laughs> uh, ink blots—the perfect subject for radio,
1: right? Well, um, and it's yes, and I appreciate you. The pictures in the text were, you know, and you you can talk about that a little too. That you sort of picked and chose what to put in there, but that was very helpful. <laughs> your
0: question about the movement—this was another of the. In in a way, this is really the core of the Rorschach test, which is one of the codes he would give would be M if it's a movement response. In other words, are, are you seeing two elephants high-fiving or are you seeing two elephants? And it, it might seem strange. What difference does it make if they're moving or not? But that turns out to be really important. And that that, in a way is sort of one of the keys of the Rorschach test and of the book. I, I can't get into all of it here, but there's a real cultural backdrop to that uh, from Russian ballet to sort of modern dance in Switzerland to ideas in psychology about how movement and perception go together. Um, But basically, if you're able to sort of bring the cards to life or sort of see movement and life in the cards, that's very telling about uh, sort of your psychological abilities. And that, that sounds kind of touchy-feely and magic, but it really isn't. There's a still picture of, you know, Charlie Brown with one of his feet up. You know that he's walking. I mean, you see movement in it. It's actually not magic that some images are dynamic. I mean, if you see a photograph of someone kicking a ball or turning their head, you see movement in it. And Rorschach was certainly enough of a visual artist that he could do these kinds of drawings or sketches when he wanted to. In fact, there's a sort of amazing story that he would sketch people's characteristic gestures in the patient files in the hospital. And decades later, after Rorschach's death, if the patient was still alive, people could sort of look at the drawing and still recognize the patient because Mm -hmm. Rorschach had captured the movement. he made these shadow puppets for asylum, like Christmas plays that were these sort of cardboard things with hinges so they could move and, you know, the arm could play the violin or doff the hat or whatever it is. So, I mean, he was very uh, interested in that visually. Um, And so, you know, he knew how to make an image that was dynamic. What he actually wrote in a letter is, well, if the if the pictures are too good, then everyone's going to see movement in all of them. Just mm. like we all see movement in a picture of, you know, Charlie Brown walking down the road. So the trick was to make them kind of diagnostic, to make them right on the tipping point. So some people will see it on this or that card. Some people won't. And where you see it and where you don't will sort of place you in terms of your tendency to to see movement in things. Um, so that's just, I, if nothing else, that's an example of the fact that these 10 images really are unique. They like work a lot better than anything you or I could make. Um, and also that um, it's actually both complicated and not mind reading to sort of evaluate A Rorschach test like there's not it's not like one of those dream books where oh if he sees a (laughs) bat that means you know that it's not how it works it's it's really um, and I get to this at the end of the book you know what we see is really a very deep part of our brains and our minds and is very uh, central to who we are like we evolved to be be visual most of our brains are devoted to visual processing. And um, it kind of makes sense that if you come up with a sort of complicated enough audition piece, then how we see things, how we approach this task of, like, making sense of this complicated visual image will sort of show how our mind works. I mean, that's a lot more plausible than the, like, hokey film noir version of suddenly seeing, you know, my mother and all the cards or whatever.
1: Right. And so, and it's like, there's this sort of tragedy. So we have this, right. He creates these, these cards. He um, is finally after trying and trying and trying, he finally gets someone to like publish his findings and publish his work. And then there's this very tragic, you know, he very suddenly dies. Yeah. (laughs) And Um, and you just feel, you feel for him.
0: (laughs) I know. It's sad, right? Um, And also a challenge for the biographer to have your hero die halfway (laughs) through the book. But no, um, not really, because the thing is that um, the story really does continue and um, and it comes to America and and um, really kind of embeds itself in the culture and then gets exported back out with, Mm -hmm. you know, American Movies and advertisements and anthropologists and everything else
1: so let's talk a little bit about that sort of second half and these ink blots coming to america and 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 what that looks like so can you talk a little bit about how they got here because they came here first um with a uh, psychiatrist doing psychoanalysis? so can you talk a bit about how they came here and 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 how that sort of started this um Love of this test. I don't know if love of the test, but the popularity of the test.
0: Yeah. So, um, as you say, uh, there was just a guy named David Levy in Chicago who happened to go, uh, on, a fellowship to Switzerland for a year and happened to be working with, uh, Rorschach's best friend right after Rorschach had died. So when he came back, um, you know he had Rorschach's writings and these ink blots, and so he uh was the first in Chicago to give someone a Rorschach test in america um, and that would have been nineteen twenty four um, Rorschach died only in nineteen twenty two so it did come pretty quickly, but it it sort of went to other countries too someone by nineteen twenty five in Japan, where there were a lot of german speaking psychologists you know, ran across it in a bookstore and he thought it was great and popularized it there. So there were just sort of different uh, paths, um, literally, in terms of when someone managed to bring it here. But the thing is, uh, especially in the 30s, the second half of the 30s, is when it really kind of became central in America. It really tapped into something that American culture was hungry for. And what that was, was a way to see the personality not just the character because, you know, it's easy to see if someone's an upstanding person, if they have a lot of money, if they sort of act in a good way, but American culture had sort of become much more obsessed with this like mysterious inner style or verb. It didn't matter if you were a good person. It mattered if you were charismatic or magnetic, masterful, dynamic, appealing. See, these are adjectives that can sort of apply to good or bad. It's not even about good or bad, because who cares if you know you don't even stand out from the faceless crowd at all. So this is a shift you can track in advertising, in movies, in self-help books, in everything in American culture. And the problem for science is that if we all have our own personality and we all see things in our own way, then there's no controlled experiment. There's nothing you can test. Um, But then along comes the Rorschach, and that was seen as this way of giving us access to the personality. So um, Herman Rorschach hadn't talked about it in this way, but suddenly in America, these inkblots became like the X-ray of the mind, where the sort of invisible skeleton inside you that you can't otherwise see is this personality of yours, and the kinds of answers you give on the cards are just how you express your personality. And that was something that American psychology and American culture really seems to have wanted. And so that's why, along with Freud, the Rorschach became so central.
1: Right. And so you mentioned that and then mentioned the 30s. And then we have um, World War II. And you talk a bit about sort of the Rorschach and how it was involved in some, you mentioned a little bit about the war and then you move into also how Hollywood sort of took control of it in the forties, or I don't know if took control of it, but but Hollywood found this and used it in, like you mentioned the dark mirror film and, and, and other sort of film noir. So can you sort of talk about that shift from the thirties to the forties?
0: Yeah. So in, any standard history of psychology in America, World War II is the big turning point. Before then you have psychologists in university labs, you have, um, sort of counseling, but you don't have kind of mental health for the people. You don't have psychologists out in the community, um, psychoanalysis is sort of this domain of, of medical doctors and uh, most people had never been to a psychologist knew anyone who went to a psychologist didn't know what it was about I mean it was very marginal until you have the draft and you suddenly have everyone giving psycholog given psychological tests um, they're used in the military the Rorschach was used less than some because they, they couldn't really scale it up. It was too sort of time intensive and required too much expertise to really be given to sort of 12 million possible draftees and something like that. But, um, but coming out of World War II, uh, you had much more familiarity with what psychology is. And also it had been shocking to the medical establishment that 12% of the people who were being uh, evaluated in the draft were found to have psychological problems. So it's not just a few insane people off in asylums. Mental health is a huge society wide issue, and now uh, they knew it. So um, Congress establishes the National Institute for Mental Health. You have the invention of clinical psychology as a field, um, which is psychology actually going out and helping people, not just sort of tracking rats, going through mazes and things like that in university labs. And so the field of psychology booms as a field and also enters popular culture. So it's in the late 40s that all these Freudian terms become household words, repression, things like that. And you also have Life magazine publishing pieces in 1946 on how inkblots reveal your personality. (laughs) And it it sort of saturates the culture to the extent that inkblots start to get used in advertising and in cartoons and things like that in the late 40s and 50s. So it's after the the big boom um, of World War II.
1: Right. And you also talk about you have a chapter on the Russian, you know, talking about World War Two, but sort of the Rorschach test with the Nazis, which is really interesting. as yeah, well. Yeah, this
0: is one of the amazing um, side side stories, if you will. Yeah, but um, it's
1: wonderful.
0: But um, yeah, so Nuremberg, Germany, 1945. World War Two's been won. A bunch of the leading Nazis are in prison awaiting trial. And the prison psychiatrist happens to be one of the two people who co-wrote the textbook of the Rorschach test, and the prison psychologist is there too and he is equally well aware that this is a gold mine because now we have this brand new, excellent technology for studying the personality, and we have this very historically unique and important group of individuals, namely Herman Goring and a bunch of other Nazis. So here's our chance to find out how evil works, to find out what's the Nazi mind, what's the Nazi personality. And so nobody orders these tests. It's not like the lawyers requested them or something. But this, uh, this psychologist and psychiatrist, who very quickly start feuding with each other, um, give the Rorschach tests to Hermann Göring and to all these other people.
1: And then, so so we have this, so it's being used, and it's being used in these places, and then you move into sort of the late 50s, the early 60s, and sort of this um, change in how the test is thought about and viewed, right? You talk about Brokaw, as well as um, John Exener. And so can you talk a little bit about them and, and what their contribution to the Rorschach test?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to get into too many details of the ups and downs, but the main story is that as with Freud, the Rorschach starts to fall out of favor Mm -hmm. in the late sixties because everyone is just like, give me a break. I don't believe this. Um, And plus in psychology, um, Rorschach had been dead for long enough that various competing systems had been established. So there was no, there wasn't the Rorschach test anymore. You could give it this way or that way, you could use it to measure this or that, different people had different scoring, all sorts of stuff like that. It's the same 10 ink blots, but the test itself had diverged and plus everyone was suspicious of it anyway. So, um John Exner is uh the psychologist who sort of came along and saved it uh if you want to put it that way. Um whereas Freudian psychoanalysis kind of continued to decline into being this very sort of marginal enclave, like most psychologists today are not Freudians. Um, Exner sort of uh, re-highlighted the numerical quantitative side of uh, the Rorschach sort of throughout all of the, ham-fisted Freudian mid-century things like, oh, if you see a male torso instead of a female one on this card, you must be homosexual, like all that kind of stuff. He just sort of got rid of and put it on solid enough um, scientific numerical basis that it could be integrated into the modern medical system. So insurance companies would pay for it. Courtrooms would accept it, things like that. Um, That's more or less the version of the Rorschach test that's actually used today. There was another big round of criticism in this book called What's Wrong with the Rorschach in 2003. And um, that has sort of, in the popular culture, prevailed. So I think if you ask the average man or woman on the street, they'll think that the Rorschach has been scientifically debunked. Also, pretty much any article that mentions the real Rorschach test, not the cliché, If they quote an expert, they'll go find one of the co-authors of what's wrong with the Rorschach, who'll say, yeah, it's been debunked, but unfortunately, it's still used. That is actually out of date. You know, what's wrong with the Rorschach was 2003. Science has moved on. There was a gigantic, it's called a meta-analysis in 2013 in the leading journal of psychology, which means they basically combed through every study on every score of everything to do with the Rorschach test and really for each one, figured out, okay, is this valid or not? So the ones with less proven validity got rejected from the system of administration and scoring. The ones with greater validity got sort of highlighted and kept. And basically, uh, if, if you think that you don't believe in the Rorschach because you believe in science, then you don't know the current science because the current science says that it's valid if it's used properly to do what it's able to do. Even the co-authors of What's Wrong with the Rorschach, who had earlier said, there should be a total moratorium, you should never use the Rorschach in clinical or courtroom settings until it's proven, after this big 2013 article said, okay, well, we're not calling for the moratorium anymore because you did what we were asking for. Um, So uh, even as the cliche takes on a life of its own, it does sort of continue chugging along in science. And, um, you know, as of today, um, is as valid as any other psychological test. Now, whether you believe in psychological tests at all is is a different question.
1: Right. And yes, and it seems like it's used to to um, determine very specific, but it, it can determine in very um, accurate ways, certain personality types and certain personality issues.
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think a lot of people are uh, kind of afraid that, oh, my God, if I say one wacky answer, then they're going to lock me up. Um That's another way that the Rorschach test isn't really used that way. I mean, no one who's responsible would base any real-world decision only on a Rorschach test. Um, If you're being evaluated for whatever reason um, in court or because you're applying to be a police officer or whatever it is, then the evaluator will, you know, interview you and give you an IQ test and give you maybe an MMPI or some other tests and give you this whole battery of tests. And if the Rorschach is one of them, it'll be integrated into integrated into their overall evaluation of you. The other thing is if you can't see and fit together parts into a whole in a way that makes sense, like you might have some problems that 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 is pretty plausible I mean maybe I should give an example or two of like a really crazy Rorschach answer. So people don't get the sense that it's just being original.
1: No, and yeah, and I want to just say, as you give that, that you do that throughout the book, which is another really interesting thing in the book is sort of showing how this, how Rorschach has been used, not only in the early 1900s and the, you know, but also today, like here's how they're used. So yes, an example would be great.
0: Getting back to what I said earlier about imagination, one imaginative answer that he got uh, quite early on uh, when he was inventing the test was oh, it's a fairy tale motif. So here's treasure in two treasure chests, and they're under the roots of a tree, which is up here, and they're on top of a witch's fire, which is down here, and there are two mythical animals, one on each side, guarding the treasure. So that's an imaginative answer. It sort of pulls together all the parts in a way that sort of makes sense of where they're positioned on the blot it has a pretty high vocabulary as they're giving the answer and it's sort of playful i mean you can just hear it um there's a recent one i like so there's a card that uh that is the one that most looks like something specific it most looks like a bat or a butterfly Mm -hmm. i thought it looked like a bat herman goring thought it looked like a bat everyone thinks it looks like a bat and Uh, Someone, um, I guess around 10 years ago, said, it's Barack Obama with George Bush on his back because it's a clash (laughs) of forces and this could be an eagle, which is the symbol of our country. Now, that is as unique an answer as the one about the treasure chests. But you can tell the difference. I mean, they're real problems with it. One thing it has is is what's called confabulation, where you see something and you kind of get stuck and you export it to everything else. Like, for example, even if an eagle symbolizes the country, that doesn't mean that eagle parts would look like presidents. Mm-hmm. But if you're sort of stuck on on the country, then you just start, you know, and you're stuck on eagles, like you're not seeing it anymore and you're not fitting the parts together anymore. You're just sort of in this weird zone that you're in. And the answer has this kind of literalistic logic, even though it doesn't make any sense. It's spoken not as a, you know, creative option, like, Oh, a fairy tale. But instead, like the answer is it's Bush and Obama because it's an Eagle, you know? (laughs) And, and so, uh, there's an a, an example of um, how, you know, it kind of makes sense that the person who gives that answer might have some cognitive problems.
1: Right. And then you sort of, so you go through and you sort of share where we're at now with the Rorschach test and the importance of it. And you sort of end with this idea that the Rorschach test, well, you get to, you finally find someone to administer it for you. Um but you also end with this idea that it's still really a part of popular culture in some ways, not the way that Rorschach intended or not the way that it's intended to use, but it still is has a very strong relationship to our popular culture, especially in the United States. And so can you sort of talk a little bit about that and how you see Rorschach playing out in popular culture?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you go to the New York Times and search Rorschach, uh, you'll – see hundreds, thousands a year. Everything gets called a Rorschach test in this cliche version. I think that the interesting thing that's happening now is a shift out of that. I mean, I was surprised that the uh, sort of popular culture idea of the Rorschach as, yeah, it can be whatever you want it to be, is new. That started in the 60s. It didn't start in the 20s when the test was invented. It was so core to my idea of what people thought of the Rorschach test, but it actually only entered the culture when we entered this kind of relativist moment where we wanted to say that anyone's opinion was equally valid. Um, I mean, it had started as a test that yields a diagnosis. I mean, it started originally as an experiment to just uh, understand how people see things, but Rorschach realized that it did differentiate people and that it was a test. It was used in psychology as a test. But then in popular culture, it became sort of the opposite of a test. There are no wrong answers. Nothing means anything. Every fact is an alternative fact. And, you know, uh, whatever you see in it is just great, and that just depends on who you are. It doesn't depend on the reality of what it actually looks like. Um, So uh, at the end of the book, I sort of look at – not so much the the real test today, which I had been talking about, but the the metaphor today, and uh this was you know written before the election, things like that mm-hmm. um but what I was starting to notice was this shift away from the sort of relativist version of the Rorschach test i mean it used it used to be that you would never say this blurry Hubble telescope image is a Rorschach test for astronomers. I mean, that just sounds wrong. And the reason it sounds wrong is because the blurry Hubble image, you know, there's a right answer, we just don't know what it is. I mean, it's not like up to every astronomer to choose what they feel like. It just means that it wasn't, you know, specific and detailed enough to give us the right answer, but there is a right answer. And the thing is now, in magazines and newspapers, you actually do start to see the Rorschach metaphor used that way. But there's sort of this um, implicit sense now, I think, more than in the post-60s to early 2000s, there's more of a sense now that there really is a common ground there, there really is a right answer, and we just have to work a little harder to get to it. Um, And One of the things, I mean, I guess the note I try to end on is that the Rorschach test is sort of rich enough to be a metaphor for that too. Because the thing about the Rorschach test is that there are these 10 cards that you can look at and then I can look at the same ones. So once I show you the card and say, what do you see and you tell me, I can then look at the same card. We have very literally this piece of visual common ground and I can do my best to try and understand and empathize with how you see things. It's not the same as you telling me your dream or sitting on a couch and free associating where there's, there's no common ground. I have to just go through you instead, uh, like with everything visual, I mean, even if we have different perspectives on something, thing, we're actually looking at the same thing just from different perspectives. And so there is um, a way to move past this idea that, yeah, anything is just whatever you feel like.
1: And so, and I have one more question sort of about the book, just to give you a chance to talk about it if you'd like, because you do put some pictures in, right? So you end with this common ground idea, but you put, you do not put all of the ink blots in. And so do you, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the choices that you made and why you picked um cards yeah. you did, because I think that's sure. really interesting. Even though you well, can't see them on the air. <laughs> um I mean I'll also say that because
0: this is a book about visual psychology and visual people and and that visual perception has a real objective quality. It's not all art interpretation, you know, it's real and it's substantive. Because of that it was important to me to put a lot of pictures in the book. So not just the ink blots, but various draft things, um, various biographical pictures of him, partly mm-hmm. because he's incredibly handsome. So that helps. He helped. is
1: incredibly, <laughs> I was like, he's a good looking man. Yes. He um, is incredibly handsome so, and his drawings but, are beautiful too. Yeah. So there's, um, so I,
0: I, I wanted to make the book visual and not just words, um, for that reason. Um, but then there's the question of since there are only ten unique ink blots, do I put them in the book or not and uh, that was a in some ways a difficult question because um a lot of psychologists are appalled at the idea um they feel that it it ruins the test um t- to which there are two answers: one is that uh just being exposed to the images doesn't ruin the test because it's not like a word association test where it's what's your first reaction. It's just how do you approach the task. So Herman Rorschach himself gave the same test to people more than once. Um, there are, you know, it doesn't ruin it. Um, the other thing is, sorry, the cow's out of that barn. Uh, the images are all up on Wikipedia and all over the Internet. So um, even if you learned in grad school from your professor that you shouldn't show the images around, it's time to grapple with reality right. and, um, and figure out what you're going to do about it. Um, that said, I didn't want to just put them all in the book, uh, partly because having them in the book and having them on the Internet is not the same as being handed a card that has sort of uh, uh, the right proportion of white space, and you can turn it around, you can hold it at arm's length, and, you know, a psychologist is handing it to you in an actual testing situation. All of these specific things are part of what the Rorschach test really is. So going online and looking at a picture of a, the ink blot is not the same as... Um, taking the Rorschach test. And so um, I did put details or sort of some of the images to at least be able to talk about it, to compare it to other ink blots, to talk about the colors, stuff like that. But um, I make it very clear that this is not a do-it-yourself Rorschach test. And even if you go online and look at the 10, uh, I mean, you can look at them, but that's not a Rorschach test. The real one actually does require a sort of physicality of the cards.
1: So this has been really fascinating. I think your book is fascinating. So my one last question would be, are you working on anything else? or Are you just sort of like working? Like, are you taking a break after this? Or what's next? You have a what's next?
0: I don't have a what's next. <laughs> Which is, Sorry. I'm... No, <laughs> I'm, I'm having conversations on podcasts about this book right now.
1: <laughs> so that's great. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you about this. Um, again, this was Damien Searles with The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you.